Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point, it is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. Hello to everyone and welcome to this week's installments of Beyond Governance here at 101.9 High FM. My name is Nimrod Mbene. The weather is really changing over the past couple of days. It is quite remarkable that uh, it's getting warmer and warmer and with obviously uh, much to the light of entities such as ESCOM as energy demand would be substantially less. However, it does not mean that the energy crisis is over. We know that the national grid is still being threatened amidst the maintenance issues, sabotage, diesel shortages, aging infrastructure and corruption that has become a routine occurrences. So we do need to really earn a sort of caution. I had a privilege of interviewing Professor Mary Metcalf, who is a former MSc for Education uh, in Gauteng and, and currently the director at Pillow. Our conversation came at the drop of a uh, backdrop of a seminar chaired by her under the theme austerity without consolidation, fiscal policy and spending choices in budget 2023. It was a very remarkable and eye-opening conversation, which I implore you, if you'd missed that, to go to our website, download it and share your views with us. Typically on this show, I often reflect on topical issues which influence our country's politics in a profound manner. There are two issues that I want to uh, have a bite on. The first being the commemoration of the 40th birthday of the UDF. As if you might recall, they've turned 20 years on August the 20th. And the second issue relates to the Reserve Bank regarding the Palapala scandal. And I'm sure the president on the latter is, is the most relieved person amidst the break summit that is underway. Can you imagine what would have happened if the, the Reserve Bank's findings uh, were damning against the sitting president? The legitimacy crisis would have just been so overwhelming for him and then for the entire leadership. So we may breathe a bit of sun of relief from that and given the stability which this country needs to recover. We cannot recover economically and being a host of such an important forum amidst the controversies of uh, leadership instabilities. Uh, so we quite, we could be grateful for that from that point. As I've indicated in my last encounter, I reflected on a letter penned by Dr. Ellen Busak to Dr. Mpopomolev regarding the 40th celebration of the UDF. Pretty much everyone who have attended that particular convention on the 20th expressed similar sentiments by Busak and everyone else, including Mpopomolev himself, also include the former General Secretary, Sherrod Corollas wherein they lambasting so-called thieves among the comrades. South Africa should be frowned, and South Africans should actually frown, that's my view, in disgust in instances where those entrusted with power to build this country, instead of abating and abating, aiding and abating corruption of pandemic proportions, we know that leadership is about dealers of hope. Uh, I hope this message will be festered as we enter into the debate of both uh, private and public entities, which is so desperately needed. 
In respect to the Reserve Bank, I'm sure you've picked up by the numerous news bulletin and, of course, the Reserve Bank website wherein the governor released the report which cleared the president, as I've indicated earlier, of any wrongdoing in the investigation to the millions of undisclosed foreign currencies stolen from his farm back in 2020. Fundamentally, this is my view, the president was not found guilty in contravening the exchange control regulations Reserve Bank report reinforces the findings of the acting public protector, Advocate Koleka, and final report on the same issue, wherein she found that there was no evidence substantiating claims that the president had undertaken paid work while serving as a head of state, or not he did abuse his power in creating a conflict with his in private interest and that of his, of, in his own as an executive. As expected, obviously, that kind of findings did not fly against the present detractors, uh, ATM, you know, UDM, COPE, and so on and so forth. They are obviously going to challenge this particular finding, and they wanted to make it known. I was quite intrigued by how Dennis Bloom likened Parapala to former state's president Zuma's Nkandla scandal. What do you make of that? That's my question. And wrapping up this particular issue, I mean, for me, you know, these these are old governance uh, related, uh, related issues, and because the question, the extent to which structures such as parliament, its committees, public protector, the Reserve Bank, apply the principle of fairness and transparency in the investigation, especially against people who are powerful, including the sitting president. When all is said and done, the public confidence can only be restored if impartiality of structures such as parliament, its committees, and indeed the public office office is seen to be unrelenting in pursuit of social justice. The track record of social justice, at least that's from my perspective, and of course, General Zerindring, appears to be an elusive one. And why am I raising this issue? The last time I checked, South Africa had 20 commissions of inquiry since 1994. 20 commissions of inquiry. The first one being the Truth and Reconciliation, and the last being the Zonda Commission of Inquiry into State Capture. And sadly, very little of substance in terms of successful prosecution, despite millions of rents being spent in each of these commissions. A case in point, the Zonda Commission cost the state over a billion rents. And I guess the, the million dollar question is, how do we, you know, why are these instruments meant to restore public confidence often seem to be dumping in a very spirit further and further into obscurity. I don't have an answer to these questions, but all we could also just have to, all we have to do is to think about them very deeply for the ramifications for our being as a people, our being in terms of the legacy that we live in for our children, leave much to be desired. Our children deserve better. Anyway, moving along, I'm joined by Professor Proper, who is the Chief Executive at Da Vinci Business School, and our conversation is about changing the landscape of higher education uh, in the country. In certainly seen for much-anticipated conversation with Professor Proper, uh, we want to take a quick break and come back just in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is a time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point, 
It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. This is Beyond Government. My name is Nimrod Kimbele. Before we, I took that short break, I introduced uh, my esteemed uh, guest on this glorious morning by the name of Professor Tropper, who is an executive at Da Vinci Business School. Uh, in setting the scene with the good prof here is that, you know, the role of business school throughout the world are meant to provide individuals with skills to make their businesses a success and in turn create jobs opportunities for fellow South Africans. They need to encourage curiosity, the ability to take risk, and innovative thinking. This opposition does not augur well with unemployment rate in South Africa. The country sitting at unemployment rate of between 35 to 242 percent when using the expanded definition of unemployment, which means we needed to grow the economy at least by two or two to three percent of GDP to absorb graduates. Every year we've got close to 150,000 graduates that increase the labor pool of, of those unemployed. And surely the role of business schools such as Da Vinci plays such an incredible role in that particular instance. Without any waste of time, let me take this opportunity to welcome Prof. Good morning and thanks for gracing Beyond Governance with your presence. Good morning, Dr. Mbele. Thank you very much for the invitation and uh, I'm really honored to be on your show uh, today. Thank you very much, Prof. I've set the scene on a very interesting uh, conversation that you and I are going to have. But before we get to that particular conversation, I couldn't help but to, you know, pick your brains on the current BRICS summit. We know that we've had uh, BRICS countries ascending our shores amidst the controversies around the invasion of, of Ukraine by Russia. And we know that the geopolitical space is moving in the opposite direction. Your just take in terms of the kind of profile of leaders we have in our country at this moment? Dr. Mbelin, I think it's, a, it's an extremely important conversation that we're having at the moment in, in the BRICS summit. And, you know, not surprisingly, the different countries bring their big cannons in here. And, and you know, just underline the importance and urgency of, of this, because if you think about the purpose of BRICS, in, in simple terms, you know, it's basically to, to ensure that there's uh, discussions around, and this is what's happening today, started yesterday, around the sources of foreign direct investment in key areas in South Africa, specific mining, the automotive industry, transportation, I think clean energy and financial service and IT is always a, a, a hot topic uh, in those discussions. And these investments and projects uh, must lead to significant job creation in the future, latching onto your comment earlier on, and you know, that trade and mutual investment, that's including certification of new business opportunities, is really what we need as a country. So to become a, a prominent a role player, to be actively part in those conversations, it's a privilege. And if you just take a step back and thinking about the bigger picture where the idea is in around about 2050, I think, to for BRICS to be the world's dominant supply of manufacturing goods. This is really important for Africa to be part of that. And we could see how President Ramaphosa stepped up and we could really see his negotiation skills uh, coming through yesterday very strongly. 
Absolutely. Um, it's quite interesting that the, the current break summit, you know, weave very nicely with the conversation that is underway in that the role of business school, because we need the context of any conversation on this show are grounded in the macroeconomic policies of the, of the country. And the business school are one of those strategic levers, which are meant to unearth and promote human capital to actually exploit the investment that you're talking about, investment in mining in transport, mining and in transportation, investment in IT, investment in the supply chain and so on and so forth, which begins to really give us a sense of where the business schools are. From that point, Prof, we know that it's a very competitive space. Talking of competitive space, the Financial Times released the executive education ranking for 2023 of the top 50 business schools in the world. Da Vinci, we end up in South Africa and in a continent. Can you just tell us where is Da Vinci in relation to the broader spectrum of business schools in the country and globally? Mm. Dr. Mbele, there's, there's various considerations. So if you look at that executive education piece, it's uh, very interesting. And, and ourselves as a business school started this year putting our toe in the executive education. So uh, we will hear more about that in, in future. The September publication coming out will also report on the business schools and the MBA offering, and, and you know we will be featured in there. But where we are, maybe one step back is to say, according to our local accredited council of higher education, there's 22 recognised business schools in South Africa, 14 sit at public universities, and eight of the 22 is uh, at private institutions. And Dabinsi being a private higher education institution, we're one of those eight. Now, these 22 business schools are fully accredited by the Council of Higher Education. All the qualifications are registered on SACWA, on the NQF. And, you know, we have the Department of Higher Education and Trade uh, Accreditation status. But as a business school, similar to the other 22, we also belong to the South African Business School Association, which is a, a grouping of business schools to actively drive discussions forward, forward promote certain initiatives that we, we um recognized as a collective are important and there we play an active role so currently there are two working groups and myself and, and one of my colleagues are chairing those uh, two committees for 2023 so I think Davinci play an active role in the South African Business School Association we've participated in all the events now the fact that you asked the question it might be interesting for the listeners to take note of reports that were commissioned by the Council of Higher Education it was published this year in February on the qualifications of South African business schools where it basically reviewed all current qualifications, the status, etc., etc., of these 22 business schools. And I actually think if you read the report, which is quite a, a lengthy document, uh, one can be very proud about the status of business schools. And then that's where we are. We're one of those 22. I'm proud to be in South Africa and actively, similar to the others, trying to make a difference in terms of unemployment, driving business discussion forward, what's relevant and how we engage on those matters. Thank you very much for that insight, Prof, which uh, begin really to shape our thinking uh, in the context of all the 22 business school, of which there's eight, uh, according to uh, your the, how you've pointed out, eight private schools, of which uh, Da Vinci Business School belongs to, to those. <laughs> Essentially, Prof, let's look at the Council of Higher Education or the body that you've defined as South African Business School Association. How does this body take the business school frontier forward? 
you've made reference to a working group of which you chair one of those. Uh, could you just take us through the thinking behind the South African Business Business School Association in respect to pushing the boundaries forward, particularly from a private business school side of things, because the public schools, the different ballgame compared to a private business schools in this country. We'll get mm. you to those issues a bit later, but take us to thinking around the, the South African Business School Association. Yeah, so Dr. Mbele, um, in, 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 as, as a collective, we have open access to each other's, all the deans and directors, uh, regular engagements, open discussions, and in a formalized matter, uh, twice a year, we have AGM and, uh, you know, annual meeting where we sit together and we identify issues of, of concern. Here's those working groups. The one is uh, working on a charter for business schools of Africa. Very interesting. And one would assume we have one in place, but it's basically there to, to bring up a refined model and say this is how business schools should be operating. This is the contribution that they make and this is the how and getting into the nitty gritty details. That's the one side of, of, of the, um, the, the committee. The other one uh, that I'm chairing is looking at the societal impact of research in the country and also in the region and up in the rest of Africa. Now, by just looking at those two task teams, you get a very good sense uh, where the South African Business School is driving towards and where it aligns. Now, when I say uh, alignment, we work very closely with Apps, the Africa Association of Africa Business Schools, we're also a member of, of them, looking at how we play our role in, in the continent. And apps, you know, the local structure with SAPSA, together with the 22 business schools, then, then on the continent become a, an interesting discussion with other continents. And when you go to other continents, you start touching on the other accreditation bodies that we will get to a bit later. How we operate, we say to ourselves, and this is, is part of the discussion here and also elsewhere in the world, um, asking the question, have business schools lost their plot? And when we ask that question, we, we ask ourselves, so what do we need to do to be relevant and to remain relevant, to ensure that people that receive a business education, that receive training or executive education or formal qualification, whether it be at a postgrad diploma, master or doctoral or undergrad level at a business school, are really able to make an immediate impact in the business to drive discussions forward because we need to 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 have people with impact to move the national development plan to address one of those nine challenges and that's what we grapple with and I don't think we'll ever solve that problem but we're actively working towards that and I must confidently say it's a comforting discussion if you look at the rigor that sits at that level amongst business schools sharing insight working together on projects but also individually to together and as individual to uplift and, and to make the, the, the scene different and, and driving us forward. Quite interesting, Prof. Um, what I'm picking up from you is the sense of network of active um, participant in the in the business community. Yeah. I mean, in the past, business schools were known and are still known for uh, to a great extent of that competitiveness. And mm-hmm. the, the needle seems to be moving away from competition to color to collaboration, yeah. am I interpreting your sense in that in that fashion? No, I think you're correct. Uh, when I look at the the SAPSA discussions, you know, and I don't have a timeline, but let's say ten years ago, it was pretty much let me keep my um, my cards close to my chest. 
whereas currently it's a very open collaborative discussion. Uh, we openly share our challenges, how we work around that in a very informal um, space. And that's also what we say is currently in the SAPSA discussion. You know, it's, it's remaining there. And that's comforting because at the end, we all sit with the same regulatory environment. We all sit with the same challenges in business. And, you know, whether people uh, acknowledge it or not, uh, most business schools operate in certain regions. And if you look at that, um, it's actually a fact that we're not directly competing with each other. Hence, we can collaborate. Uh, for instance, if you look at, at the business schools in, in our area, each has their own segment, their own unique way, their own unique qualifications. So, no, it's very collaborative, a very open colloquial discussion. Uh, and, you know, I think that's when we bring in the discussion with Business Unity South Africa, Business Leaders South Africa, and et cetera, et cetera, is there to learn together, really to become a mature association. And I think that really... Uh, is the case if we look at the last three, four years under the capable management of, of the MD, Ms. Ann Wilson and the collective of deans and directors. Um, and, and also what we do every a second year, we change the chair and the deputy chair of SAPSA to give other institutions the chance also to drive it forward. So it's really a, it's extremely valuable and a powerful and important network. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point, it is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back if you have just joined us. My name is Martin Bailey. I am joined by an esteemed uh, professor from Da Vinci Business School, Professor Klopper. Prof, one of the issues that you raised, which I want to explore a little bit more, is the commissions that one of them you're chairing. You made mention of two commissions, um, and, and one is obviously on qualification. The other one is on societal impact of research in the country and in the continent. Interesting for me is, is the, you've spoken, you, you mentioned the charter. To what extent, how far are you in drafting the charter, which obviously would govern associations of the business school in the country to enable it to become more of a force, particularly in the context of business in South Africa, because the kinds of engagement thought process that obviously you are, you are championing amongst others have a significant impact on how the business unity South Africa uh, is being reconfigured to ensure that we become more and more responsive to the macroeconomic issues. You've mm. correctly pointed out to to the NDP, mm. of which is lagging behind in terms of some of the targets. Take us mm. through this, Prof. Yeah, so Dr. Mbela, I think uh, like in any institution that, that mature, you know, this is the next logical step. So informally, there's been some rules of engagement, but we said to ourselves uh, last year that we need this charter. Um, so where we are with the charter, it's basically done dusted. I noticed a few refinements and in our September annual meeting, um, we will then um, accept that charter, you know, also put it up publicly for, for in, in this, tell people where we are and what we stand for. Now, uh, if, if you look at, at similar institutions, you know, in the higher education space, if I can maybe take one step back, 
We have two main associations. The one is USAF, University South Africa, and the other one is SAPI, the South African Private Higher Education Institution, looking at public and private. Now, that's playing at university level. At the business school, we have SAPSA. So SAPSA is, is really the mouthpiece, and, and we say to ourselves, because we are working together and, and we're moving forward, uh, we do pick up that people are not quite clear. And to your question, what are the contributions of SAPSA? Hence, we're working on this charter that's nearly done. Now, in there, uh, we're very clear about where it's going. And, you know, some insight is, you know, what are we kind of doing? What what are the, the kind of business education that we stand for? How do we make an impact? Uh, what's the importance of having... Uh, industry relevance, you know, a big challenge that we find that is even in that uh, February report from the Council of Education is that a lot of business schools um, in the rest of the world, and it's a few instances in South Africa, because of pressure on publications, almost bring in your academics that publish, but have no industry relevance or experience. You know, that's what we lack. You know, we're sitting in the laboratory. We need to be present there. So one of the points in the charter is the industry experience and the relevance of the content we teach, but also the facilitators that we have to make sure that we don't talk about business, but that we work closer with business. And in there is the challenge that we also need to mobilize the business businesses in Africa to say, bring your problems into our space. Let's work on that, uh, that it become one conversation. Now, if we can't break those down, uh, we will be ever in this us versus them and they versus those, that grouping. And this is why this chart is important to almost drive the, the way of business education forward and say to anybody, this is how one need to think about business education. This is how one need to engage and practice and facilitate this. Doesn't matter which industry, which sector you are, and, and that's the beauty of this charter. That's why I'm so excited about it. That's quite intriguing, Prof, indeed, because at some point you raise an issue, I suppose, which is a million-dollar question um, around whether the business school have lost their plot or not. And one of the critical, I suppose, strategic lever is that of industry engagement, because if business schools run parallel or almost like ivory tower, so to speak, uh, without necessarily being integrated with industries, the kind of research that is needed to further advance innovation and creativity would be meaningless unless mm. unless it draws le- its legitimacy from the pains of business and how those pains of businesses have been researched with a view to provide a solution or set of solutions that would address the problem of society. Your thought on that, Prof? Yeah, no, Dr. Mbele, it's, it's a very relevant uh, question that you ask, and I think you interpret it spot on. So at, at Avinci, for instance, we, we are proud to say we are moat to institution. Now, now what the moat mean, um, most, unfortunately, the institutions of Africa, not just the business schools, are typical moat one. They, 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 they talk to a process, take these seven steps and apply that to the context. And you know, it's pretty much the application of, of theory in a, in a simulated way, whereas we say in a mode two, we try and push the, the transdisciplinary agenda, uh, look at things across disciplines and, and really say how do we produce knowledge through the application thereof. So it's it's not so much about the, the theory, it's how the theory will guide you and how you use that as a lens then to interpret the current situation and make a difference. And then if you start going to the mode three discussion, which we also have, you touch on the community side and say, Besides having the impact in mode two, what's the, the, um, 
effect and, and the, the influence on the communities and how do you unlock communities? And if you go to a mode four approach, which very few business schools in the world are able to deal with and, and we have that discussion amongst ourselves and, and some partners at Da Vinci mode four, then really look at the societal impact and looking at what we leave behind for the long term. Now, if you think about this modality, Dr. Mbele, it became important to, to ask ourselves, what are we researching? What are we teaching? To have another piece of research why a butterfly in the center of Gauteng only breed once a year. And uh, we ask it maybe from a business school perspective, that's not really interesting. It's irrelevant. We need to solve real business problems. And then those sits in a national development plan. How do we address inequality? How do we address unemployment? Um, so at, at Da Vinci, we are, I almost want to use the word fascinated, if I can put it that strongly, with measuring the return on investment or the social return on investment or the societal economic return on investment and say everything we do and we teach or we research must move the needle in some way. How do you alleviate poverty? How do you change the policy? How do you change legislation? And if we think around that one, it's our view at the business school environment that we're actually able to become a, a, a reckoned force and we drive business education forward. And, and that's only possible if you allow a very, very balance and a fine balance between academia and practice, ensuring that you have the right systems in place from a, a systemic perspective that uh, the tail don't start to wag the dog. So it's a very fine balance. And I think that's what, what most of the business schools worldwide also struggle. Hence, you'll find the more successful business schools tend to be detached from the mothership, from the main university. They almost operate independently because the, the mothership keep them backed trying to force them into the publication, publish or perish route, whereas the business schools publish a lot, do very impactful research, but they do things that's relevant for industry. And that close link is really where the success sits in. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. My experience in, in Ivory Towers, which are predominantly theoretical, often miss the boat, um, hence, you know, the struggle for them to, to really keep lights on for they're still stuck in the past for any successful business school. And that is why, I mean, you're quite correct that those that are beginning to make inroads in being relevant are those that have sort of detached or sort of sought some level of autonomy, if you like, enable them to make quicker decisions in responding to the needs of the industry in the main for when you are in a bureaucratic setup you know, you, you can only, I'm um, all imagine these committees, endless committees, which obviously predetermined and the market does not work like that. If mm. I am a automobile industry, I need a solution tomorrow. I don't want a solution in the next three, four months or so. Mm. So which means the agility is quite important and the agility can only be expedited in instances where there's some level of autonomy, which I would imagine private business schools or business schools in the main tend to enjoy compared to so-called mothership or mother body where mm. everything is just so bureaucratized, structured, and to a point where they are seen not to be responsive to the needs of the market. Yeah, no, very true. And I think that's exactly the reason why we at Da Vinci, for instance, you know, uh, in context of what you said, saying to our students, 
it's not so much about solving a problem. You know, a problem come and go. To your point, it's relevant tomorrow and it might change the day thereafter. If you just look at what's happening at the BRICS discussions, I think there will be very interesting opportunities to be presented. So, so we say to ourselves, how do we probe the problems for the future? Uh, if we probe a problem in, in the future, we're not able only to solve it, but also to be positioned correctly and to have the means and end to keep on addressing that, you know, hence that that balance between um, how you manage your managerial competencies and practices that come forward is very important to almost reskill and in the process um, get our students to unlearn certain behaviors that unfortunately they were taught at undergraduate or that they, they've picked up in, in the former studies. Uh, and, and, and for instance, in that matter, we use TIPS managerial leadership framework where we bring in the balance between technology, innovation, people and system and say in a strong disciplinary manner, this is how we need to think about the future. This is how one through cooperative engagement in certain areas, coordinate and collaborate, have meaningful conversations in, in deconstructing problems. Uh, and by dissecting that, are able to reconstruct them and probe future solutions. So it's almost a, a different way of thinking, come back into the modalities of mode two, three and four. And I think that's part of the the big challenge we stuck with at business schools because uh, 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 the, and also at universities, a lot of people want to teach how they've been taught. Uh, they also want to teach content that they've been taught, not realizing that you must work with what you have at the current moment in time and being able to interpret that. So it almost become real what we refer to as andragogy or yetagogy, adult learning or self-determined and self-directed learning uh, instead of somebody that tell you do this, do that. So that ability to do it yourself, it's a maturity level that kicks in. And, you know, I found that very dis- exciting in discussions around long life learning uh, and lifelong learning, if you play the two around and there's books on both, how one need to think differently about business education. And I must honestly say those discussions we have amongst the business schools in South Africa, and that excites me. It's really positive. Absolutely. The other point, Prof, that I want to get our thoughts around, I mean, you've indicated there's only eight uh, private business schools in the country. And uh, the macro statistics around unemployment, obviously, I've already indicated the quarter, which means they first cost is not at the point where any private entity can actually thrive. So from a policy point of view, I want to elevate the conversation to policy regime, wherein because the private sector, private business schools are governed differently from public sector, particularly from the funding model. To what extent the funding model wherein you are almost like independent, take us through that kind of environment and extent to which that environment either suffocate or create an enabling environment for business schools to be more resilient. Dr. Mbila, I think uh, there's a lot that's started happening in the last two, three years. And, and you know, under current leadership of Dr. Woodfield Green of uh, the Council of Higher Education, and if you look at uh, Mr. Chief Mubusela from from Department of Higher Education Trade, they really do a lot in the higher education training. So in of last year, uh, or in our fairness, maybe, uh, I think it was uh, April last year, uh, there was a, a draft policy for the recognition of South African higher education institutional types that served. And um, as the business schools, we all gave collective input. As individual institutions, we also provide input, and it was open for public commentary. Now, in that draft policy, they 
They suggest three institutional types for the future. And in there, they do away with a strong emphasis on private versus public and, and almost get on, on the three institutional types. Now, we are actually looking forward to seeing um, the next draft version for, for comment or whether it's going to be the final one. We have no idea. Uh, it's sitting with the Minister of Education at the moment, um, and we anticipate the outcome. But if you look at the the mentioned in there and also the current higher education act it draw distinction between private and public and and besides being governed by the same regulator requirements um being sakwa nqf and you know exactly the same criteria applied across all institutions of africa whether you apply the public funded boil down to three main differences so the only real difference between uh, a public and a private institution uh, come down to the fact that private institutions um, you don't get subsidy from the state so you use private money hence there's no influence or uh, determination in factor over and above the regulatory environment that uh, are guiding and impacting private institutions the second one uh they may obviously not call themselves, uh, uh, use the title university, so that's reserved only for uh, the state um, public institutions receiving subsidy. And with that matter, arguments sake, you can't use the title or issue the title honorary professor or professors. And then the, the third one, interesting enough, you're not allowed to use the title of um, a, a rector or vice chancellor. So it comes down into the nomenclature. Beyond that, you know, there's no difference. So this new draft policy actually did away with the distinction between private and public and rather look at institutional types. And what excites me about that draft policy, it talks about three areas of focus for the future, you know, and, you know, it's in, in essence, it comes down to, to thinking how to develop a higher education system that have a, a common goal of meeting national and regional uh, needs in social, cultural, economic development based uh, environment for almost looking at the, the different choices of programs and you know how I want to think about that, keeping in mind the history of the country and, and therefore it promotes three things. You know, the very first one, the diversification of access, which is in very important discussions. You know, it's not just the curriculum, the qualification and the structure. So it's all about the access to readdress the past. And the second one, is to de- promote the development of flexible learning systems, uh, progressively encompassing the entire educational sector. And then recently, in the beginning of this year, uh, CHE published uh, a vital stats, and that's something I would urge the listeners to go and look at, where it gives you the throughput rates and access rates, how many people are from this uh, nationality, how many qualifications there, and those vital stats I'll start telling a very important and a very positive story. And the third one that is promoted to be much more responsive to the higher education sector, uh, kind of what we've been speaking here today. And I think for me, you know, that's really a, a positive development in maturing our education system in the country. Those are quite interesting development indeed, Prof. How far down the line is this policy draft which articulates some of the glitching areas I would imagine that in my mind suffocates the innovation associated mm. with private universities or private business schools. We were all and I can't recall the date, end of I think of August last year we submitted our input to the policy which uh, one would then suspect it was widely consulted and associated and, and, and you know disseminated that they would use that input to bring the final policy forward 
Now, we suspect it to be a final policy, but by looking at the kind of discussions we had as a collective in the SAPSA discussion, also in the SAP environment at university level, I think there's a, a lot more that need to be unraveled uh, in this discussion. So I will not be surprised if they come with a second draft policy for refined input with another timeline, unless the minister is brave enough and are able to incorporate all and say, there's the final policy. Now, I think what's being being lagging, this is a discussion for the past number of years that haven't received attention. So the time is running out and there's a lot of pressure to once and for all clear this regulatory environment to really allow the institutions to respond more quicker and better to the needs of, of the country. So if I'm, I'm very positive uh, one day, I might say to you, I hope that we have the, the final policy this year somewhere. We don't have any indication. It's all in Mr. Zamanzi's hand, and we're really anticipating, with anticipation, looking forward to that. So I honestly can't give you an exact timeline. Uh, besides mentioning this is a discussion that started in the, the early 90s, died off, and then it got resurrected three, four years ago. So we really hope that it now come to table to clarify this for all role players. Interesting insight indeed, Prof. Let's take uh, yet another commercial break. We'll come back in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world, and now it is a time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point, it is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. This is Beyond Governance. My name is Nomar Timbele. I'm having a very fascinating conversation with Professor Plotter, uh, who is the CEO at the Venture Business School. We're looking at the changing landscape of um, a higher education base. The other issue that I wanted to raise, Prof, in that policy conversation that has been resuscitated and that everybody seems to be excited about, what has been the role of BUSA in pushing that particular agenda? Because this is one apex business authority that has that muscle which government often listen to. Dr. Mele, yeah, exactly the, the the point. So I think now this is the discussion when they open it up for comment. Obviously, all higher education institutions participated, and we understand that, you know, uh, some have offices that are better mobilized, so they participated, but it was also open to BUSA and Business Leadership to Africa and all those associations. Uh, hence, you know, we, for instance, participated via a SAPSA uh, forum and also a SAPI forum. But BUSA was consulted, and part of that, you know, is to look at the kind of education. So that's why I say I'm really confident that we are currently in a transforming higher education sector. A few years ago, it was only uh, a few policymakers that would have got it, and this time really opened it up for comment from all role players. So BUSA actively participated. Now, what comforted me in that process is, you know, as we as our education landscape is continually being transformed to address the historical imbalances of inequality and to serve the new social order needs and to meet the pressing national needs in the NDP and respond to new um, reality opportunities, they consulted widely on this process. So that's why we're so eager to see what the, the new draft will come in now. That being said, 
looking at the current draft that we all commented in, and it should be available on the CHE website, uh, is pretty much governing the institutional types and not so much talking to the nitty-gritty, the how and the what. And, and that's where we're falling short. And, and I think that's where uh, a body like SAPSA again become a powerful voice where we, through a SAPSA network, engage with Buza. So uh, we had uh, both the CEO of Buza and Business Unity South Africa at separate uh, forums at SAPSA to talk to the business schools. So whether it will be impact of policy, I think it's maybe a bit too far removed. But as, as a collective, we are pushing on that one. And, and I think that's why we should not sit back to our lures and, and we should keep on rolling up our sleeves and say, let's actively participate in a discussion rather than being talked about, talk with these people. The last point that I want us you to reflect on um, is this uh, international accreditation that uh, business schools try themselves. How valuable is the international accreditation such as ECRIS, for an example, because that tends to be, obviously the big cost driver, project a particular image of an entity. Um, South African and African universities and business schools in particular, to what extent do we want to emulate those kinds of um, accreditation status, which or may not be in sync with the African realities? Dr. Mbele, this is a tough question, but, but let me give you my honest opinion, um, because uh, in my former institution at, at Monash, South Africa, we had the Triple Crown accreditation. Now, the Triple Crown being AACSB, which is the Associate for Advanced Collegiate Schools of Business, a typical the USA system, and then the Association for MBAs, um, AMBA, which is the, based in London uh, for all MBAs, and then uh, Equus which is driven by, um, if you, you EFMD, um, now if you think about um, EFMD through the Equus, the uh, European Quality Improvement System, and the combined three of them give us the triple crown, uh, where only a, a limited number of institutions in the world have, have a, a triple crown status. Now at the end, um, it's the fact that people are looking into those and they're nothing wrong. What excites me about this, once you take a step away, it says not so much about uh, the accreditation, it's the self-evaluation review process one goes through by applying for this. Now, if you look at the origin of AACSB, it was originally established in America to ensure that the old professors didn't go off the track when they are teaching. So it's almost a quality control. And that's what it comes down to. It's a accreditation system that are recognized in a certain part of the world to drive the discussion in that part. So ACSB in America, uh, Amber around MBA is driven from London. So it's just the office there and EFMD or the Equus is the European system, and locally in Africa we have APS, the Association of African Business Schools. Now, if you look at all of those, the one have 17, the other one 21 criteria, it's a mixed match of, of them. But if you really take a step back, it asks some pertinent questions. And those questions are dealing with your governance, your program content, your engagement with alumni, your presence in industry. Uh, so it's really asking the right questions. So at the end, you know, my view is you cannot go wrong in uh, striving for these accreditations because it's an outside view into your process and give you more rigor. An interesting conversation we had at the national level the other day is some of the business schools, and there are only four in South Africa that have all four, are saying if they could choose again, and this is what you kind of asked me, uh, they might not have opted in to get all those um, 
triple crown accreditation because it become very expensive to maintain. You know, you pay a membership fee without getting real value for it besides being invited to events where you still need to fly and pay and all of that. They would much rather support a local contextual approach. So increasingly we see people joining apps. And I think that's positive. What do we need in Africa to move the African agenda forward? What do we need in the region? Now, that being said, if you have all the money in the world and you have a big accreditation office, it's nice to have all these uh, accreditations from other parts of the world. But if you look at our grouping and arrangement in SAPSA and within apps, I think we have access to all of these standards. And this is part of the charter we're working on. What do we need to do ourselves? You know, it's much more pertinent and relevant for our local context. Uh, if I look at, at uh, my Australian experience where we had the AAA, uh, one of the, the criteria there is how uh, mobile are your alumni. Now, we can argue in our context, it's not about the mobility of alumni. It's rather what's the uh, impact of our alumni on local societies and communities. Have we really succeeded in changing the policy framework? How have we changed the SADC or the arrangement around AGOA at the moment? So it, it's just a different set of eyes, a different set of criteria. And that's what you find in the rankings, the Times ranking, all these Africa rankings. Now, I'm not shooting them down. I personally think if you look at the criteria in all those ranking systems, accreditation systems, you must take out what's relevant in your context and work with that. And if you then decide this one makes sense, uh, go and apply for that. Um, and, and that's what we ourselves are doing. And I know a lot of other business schools are also doing that. But interesting enough, the conversation where people mentioned they might not have opted in up front. So it comes down to relevance, what you do, the how and the what and the when and the where. Uh, absolutely, Prof. I mean, the cost driver, I mean, that's something that I'm quite aware of. Uh, being part of those um, accreditation at the global level are very quite expensive. And there's, based on what you're saying, you're saying there's not much value add other than just um, having those kinds of, of, of label, if you like, which in my mind begins to ask a question around geopolitical um, validation, this kind of hegemony, because it is important for Africa in the context of the Africa Free Trade Agreement that institutions such as uh, the Association of African Business Schools need to be grounded in what happens in, in, in the continent for mm-hmm. continent to be where Europe ought to be. There's different model that needs mm-hmm. to be pursued. And given the fact yeah. that the vast majority of the population in the continent are SMMEs, which require a completely different regime. So obviously there are certain pockets of accreditation criteria that are obviously relevant. For an example, governance across the board, that is quite important. Based on what you're saying, we do need to reflect deeply and begin to identify pockets of what is relevant, applicable in our own context without necessarily driving the price ticket for us to look glorious uh, abroad, whereas at the backyard we are living in abject poverty. There lies the role of business schools in an African context. Yeah, but it's also a fact, and I just want to, yeah, no, it's exactly very valid what you've said, but one must also keep in mind we are not just doing business with ourselves in Africa. Uh, In the geopolitical area, we do cross-continental trade. Now, 
it's either there's then also still valid to look at, you know, EFMD of Equus and ACSB and AMBA because you will be doing business with people in America. Uh, people in China and people in Singapore, Australia, and so I can continue. So to to have access and insight into those processes and thinking the world is really becoming a small space. So I think we should be naive if we argue that we must only think about local accreditations um, because um, a lot of these in multinationals are really in our space. You know, if you look at the 22 business schools I've cited, there's a lot more business schools that you can get access through online that's uh, available to our, our, our um, population in South Africa. Hence, to be relevant at a global level, it's extremely valuable to look at, at the conversation that's happening amongst those institutions, you know. So there's bits and pieces, you know. It's not to say you can use the recipe. You must go and extract what you find valuable. And, you know, sometimes, yes, you must sign up for membership to get access to that. But I think that due political and the impact of of uh, a global trade is really driving this forward. The world is really a small space at the moment. Prof, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it Thank you very much for coming through. We have certainly benefited immensely uh, based on your insight inputs, which I found intriguing. Thank you very much, Dr. Mbele. Much appreciated. Unfortunately, I've delivered here. Have yourself a wonderful morning. Shalom. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point. It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making.